Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. Guys, I'm telling you, I'm sitting back there pulling double duty doing the soundboard. And I'm just like, like, what do you do when you enter God's presence as strongly as we have this morning? How do we respond? Like, is, is what, I've, what I've spent laboring and praying over even enough, right? But if God's presence is here and his word is sufficient, it will always be enough, right? So grab your Bibles, turn to Exodus 34. That's where I would love for you to join me in this morning, Exodus 34. While you're turning there, I want to read a little note that we got, right? With everybody kind of dispersed because of COVID-19, one of our biggest responsibilities have been to connect with people who are out and about, right? We've been sent out, right? And um, there's been a lot of things that have happened in a lot of people's lives these last few months. Um, surgeries, deaths, suicides, right? Like it's, it's been a heavy time for all of us. And um, One of the saving graces of the world today is the church. Like you guys, Right? And so we got a letter from a member of our church named Laquisha, right? That's the, the van guy's wife. That's what I hear I'm supposed to introduce her as. Cause, but she has her own identity, okay? I'm just kidding. They are one flesh in Jesus, so we preach that. She wrote us a letter. She wrote our church a letter, and I wanted to read it to you guys. Dear church family, thank you all so much for all the prayers, visits, amazing meals, calls, and beautiful cards. I'm still home recovering for a few more weeks. I'm so thankful and feel so blessed, loved and supported by you all. Adam and I, more than you may imagine, truly do appreciate each of you and how you expressed God's love. I'm so thankful for technology. Even in times, it's not the best. All right, Lucretia, we're working on it, okay? Just kidding. So at least I can participate in service via YouTube or Facebook. May God continue to bless each of you sincerely, Lucretia. Wanted to share that with you guys. Thank you for being the church. Thank you for being the church, the expression of God's love in the world today, right now. Okay, so we're continuing on in our series called A Glimpse of Glory, right? And if you're not caught up, if you're kind of joining us for the first time this morning, there's a whole series of, of this online. You can go catch up online at waynesborofm.com forward slash sermon so you can kind of see where we've been, how we've been tracking so far through this whole passage, through this whole narrative of Moses encountering the presence of God, right? And we, uh, we, he ultimately gets to a point where he's asking to see the glory of God. And I told you I'd ask you this last week, what is the glory of God this week? It hasn't changed from last week. What do we define as the glory of God? The beautiful All right, everybody air five right now. Well done. The beautiful perfections of God's sovereign character is the glory of God. It's not just an atmosphere. It is, it is the character of God itself, right? And the reason why we're looking at this is because we believe it's the best thing for us. 2 Corinthians 3 says that we become what we behold. Like if we behold the glory of God, we will be transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to the next. And so I want us to be a transformed people. Do we not want to be a transformed people? Amen? Right, so we are looking at the glory of God. And today we are going to look at the fact that God is patient. Can you say that with me? One, two, three. God is patient. 
This sounds pretty mundane, but trust me, it's pretty big. It's pretty lofty, and we're going to get there. But I'll tell you this. You know, before I was married, before I had kids, I thought I was a pretty patient guy. Right? I, I just, I, yeah, I mean, I grew up in a home where my, my parents were very patient, and, and I, that was kind of instilled in me. I never, didn't really truly overreact a lot. I mean, except for when my brothers and I got in a fight, but that's a different story for a different time. And when I first married my wife, right, I, if some of you haven't had the pleasure of meeting her, just an FYI, she's the godliest person you'll ever meet. So it's not hard. My marriage is not hard because of her. It's only hard because of me. And so having to have patience in my marriage, not really re- much required because she's, she's that good. But I'll tell you what, as soon as you have a kid, as soon as you have a child, you just basically see your whole character go to the toilet. Like you find out how terrible, truly terrible of a person you really are, especially when it comes to patience, right? Like the thing, the monster in me that got brought out as soon as I entered the environment of fatherhood, the monster was impatience, right? It was like, wait, where, where is this coming from? <laughs> I didn't have this growing up. Where did it go? Like, why, why is it here? And we've, all of a sudden, I find out that I'm totally, totally an impatient person when it comes to my kids. I'll tell you what, kids will let you know if you're patient or not. They will try it. That's the very, like, I think that's the one thing that they try to test every time, right? It's your patience. I'll tell you this, like, whether or not it's a, a kid who is taking 20 minutes to decide on what shoe goes on which foot while you're waiting in the car to buckle in, when you've already told that child that they don't need shoes because they're not even getting out of the car, that will test your patience, right? Or, or what, about, what about when you're in the middle of family worship? We're all on the living room couch. We've just gone through our Bible story. We've gone through our question for the week. We've gone through uh, scripture memory, and we've, we're in prayer. And I have a child who's doing in prayer. While I'm praying, doing headstands on the couch next to me, shoving her rear end in my face while I'm trying to pray, I tell you what, that tests your patience. You tend to find out how short of a wick you have, right? I'll tell you what, parenthood is patience-hood. And guys, those two examples were just in the last seven days. Like those aren't stories from like years ago, literally within the last seven days. I could count I couldn't count how many times my patience has been tested and revealed that I'm not very patient. And so I just want to go ahead and put that on the table and hope that all of us can agree that Scott's not that patient. <laughs> or fill in your own name, right? Can we, can we just like, take a time to look at our lives, look at our own maybe relationships around us, Maybe even our own expectations of God and realize, maybe, man, I'm not that patient. Yet we are in love with and surrendered to a God who is patient. Hallelujah. And that is worth celebrating. In other words, he puts up with us. <laughs> That's actually kind of what it means. So we talk about, oh, God is love, God is grace, God is forgiveness. God puts up with you. That's not all warm and fuzzy, is it? 
doesn't like churn up your heart. You're like, wait, what, God? (laughs) You put up with me? You're patient with me? For a time. Let's go to the text. We're in verse six. It says this. I hope you have it memorized by now. We've read it like multiple times the last few months. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Guys, this is the expression of God's glory. May he bless the study of his word. The one thing that we're honing in on this morning, we've already talked about how God is gracious, he is merciful, and now we're on to that part where it says he is slow to anger. Can you say slow to anger? Slow to anger. In other words, God puts up with provocation to a point, right? He long suffers. The word in Hebrew actually means he's got a long nose. I'm not kidding. He's got a long nose, which is weird, but it's implying that he is able to suffer long is what it's saying. It takes God a while to be provoked to anger. Now, you gotta rationalize that for a second. Think about that. Wait, so you're saying that there is a time when God gets angry? Are we reading that right? God does, in fact, get angry? Guys, there's a whole population of people, even in the Christian church, who have a really, really tough time with this particularly, with this idea that God can get angry, right? It's not really well accepted in my generation and lower, right? That's because that's we, don't, we don't really go that far with God's character. You'll hear things like, oh, I believe in a God of love, right? But I can't believe in a God of anger, Right? Because it's almost as if the two are totally incompatible because like one communicates acceptance while the other one communicates rejection. We have to answer the question, are anger and love incompatible? The answer is absolutely not. No, they are totally compatible. In fact, I think they're more intertwined than you and I realize. Let me prove it to you. So if, if my kids were to go on a field trip, right? They were going on a field trip and they were to be away from me and, and something happened where one of my kids gets kidnapped. You betcha that I am going to hunt that person down, let them know that I have a particular set of skills that makes me a nightmare for people like them and I will fight to have my child back using the skills that I learned when fighting my brothers growing up. I don't care how good they are, my fatherly wrath will come out because I love my child and I hate anything that would hurt them. I hate any evil that would come against them. In fact, you, if that were to happen, right, you, the prayer requests were to go out, you'd get the little text message or the phone call, right? And you heard, oh, Pastor Scott's child was kidnapped. Please pray. You call me, and I'm like, oh, yeah, everything's fine. We're good. Yeah, I'm doing great. Yeah, things are good. Would you question whether or not I loved my child? Right. If there's, there's, like, I should be angry at that, right? There should be a time where I get angry at something like that. 
If I weren't angry at something like that, wouldn't you question, what, what, is that really love? Do you love your child? Or even more so, how about this? This one gets a little bit more tough. Let's say my son grows up, he starts driving, and for some reason he just makes a terrible decision. He goes out partying, drinking, drives home drunk, wrecks the car, lies about it. Do you think I'm just gonna be like, okay. No, that boy's gonna feel my wrath because I love him too much to let him stay in that nonsense. I love him too much to accept that kind of idiocy. I love him too much to allow him to continue in that kind of behavior, right? I love my kids, so I'm not gonna let that happen to them. I'm not gonna even let them be a part of anything like that. So anytime that that happens, my love is gonna elicit an anger. So guys, I have to say this. Sometimes if you aren't angry, you're wrong. Right? Sometimes if you don't get angry, you're not actually in love. Guys, the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is hate, and hate in its final form is indifference. The opposite of love, having the fullest and warmest affections towards someone, the opposite of that is saying, no, I don't care a lick about you. Guys, anger in its perfect form, its pure form, is good because it is an expression of love. Right? So when we, when we think of anger, the problem that anger has, it's, it's, we often relate it to how we see anger on the horizontal level, right? We see anger around us, maybe, honestly, like maybe we grew up in a home where anger just abounded from your parents. And it turned into wrath where you, it, they just slashed and burned. Right? That, 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 that kind of anger where it's capricious, where it's irritable, where it's rash, that's not the perfect form of anger. That's a broken form. Right, J.I. Packer, he would describe anger as this. God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. So the idea that someone can't love you and also get angry with you or angry at something that you've done or wrong that you've committed, that's just foolish nonsense. I can accept you and love you and want the best for you and get angry at something that you've done. The, the idea that, that anger and love can coincide, we literally have to root that in the person of God because that's where we find it in perfect balance, Right? Because we just found out that God is both merciful and gracious and slow to anger, meaning there is a time where he gets angry. It's rooted in God's love. So this right here, if you, if you want a kind of like a definition of the purest form of anger, like a, a perfect anger, of a righteous anger, this would be the definition. Anger is energy aroused in defense of something good and released against something evil. Can you say that with me? Anger is energy aroused in defense of something good and released against something evil. Guys, anger is literally love in motion towards a threat to that which you love. 
So if, if, if something, something you really love is threatened, then you're going to get angry at the threat, right? To defend that which you love and hold dear. So in fact, I would say that when you do find yourself getting angry, you should just like, if you can, step away from that fire, pause and say, okay, what am I defending? What am I defending here? Right? The answer shows what you're loving. Right? The answer shows what you love most. So for example, like when Jesus, oh boy, that dude, he walked into the temple, he saw what he saw and what he started doing. Right? He flipped some tables in anger. What was he defending? His father's house because he loves where his father dwells. So ask yourself, what am I defending in my anger? Sometimes the answer is something that's really good, right? Sometimes the answer of what you're defending is a good answer. So it's like you're defending your wife or you're defending your children or you're defending like a neighbor who is in need. But sometimes what you're defending is your own reputation or maybe your own identity or maybe an idol. So maybe, for example, you get angry because you can't watch the game today because your wife putting something on the schedule? I mean, geez, opening day of NFL and we got a church picnic. Who's angry about that? Who can't go home and watch the new games coming on? Right? Geez, why would the church do that? What are you defending? The idol of your heart, your game. Or maybe, for example, you, you, you blow up at your kids right? because they threw a tantrum in the store or they behaved a really embarrassing way. And you kind of hold it together while you're in public, but as soon as you get in private, you just unleash all wrath on your child. What are you defending? In that moment, you're defending your reputation because how would other people perceive you as a parent in that environment? What you defend in your anger shows what you love in your heart. What you defend in your anger shows what you love in your heart. So this is why God gets angry. God is slow to anger. It's because he loves. It's because he loves us. It's why Jesus gets angry because he is a man of pure love. So guys, how God has defined his own existence, right, and his character is that he is one who defends what he loves by fighting against the threat of evil. Is that not literally the definition of like a superhero? Is it not? He defends what he loves to fight against, by fighting against that which threatens what he loves, by that which threatens what he cares about. He fights against the evil. That's a hero, right? So God is literally, because he is slow to anger, he is literally our hero, right? He is our superhero. He wages war against whatever threatens that which he loves. And sometimes what threatens those whom he loves is within those whom he loves. Sometimes what threatens the things that he loves are actually inside of that which he loves. The sin that dwells within. 
that indwelling sin that's still in the believer that will once be extracted when we're finally glorified on the day of Christ. But it says very specifically that God is slow to anger. Right? Very slow to anger. He's got a long fuse, in other words. But I'm telling you, at the end of that fuse, there's still dynamite that's just totally going to decimate whatever he hates. Whatever is the threat. Guys, the nature of God is to delay the expression of his wrath. So how do we see this play out? What does this look like for us? Well, think about Noah, right? Think about the story of Noah. For example, Noah's day, like everybody was totally wicked. Like everybody, there was only one guy on the whole planet who actually cared about God. Imagine that. One guy on the planet and God goes to that guy and says, all right, I'm gonna ask you to build an ark and through you I'm gonna preserve the creation that I've created. You're gonna get a, a, your family, you're gonna get animals two by two and they're gonna come on and we're gonna preserve this, right? So he makes that announcement, tells Noah to build the ark and 120 years later, 120 years later, finally the flood comes. During that whole time, Mo, uh, Noah, not Moses, Noah is building the ark and he's proclaiming repentance to the people around him and not a single person repents. 120 years. As the apostle Peter in 1 Timothy 3.20 says that that time frame literally was because God suffers long. It says that God didn't just immediately enact justice upon the earth or bring his wrath on the earth. He waited and suffered for 120 years. The total rebellion of the whole world. God being slow to anger caused him to do that. Or let me give you another example, right? With the people of Israel. Guys, I, I, I've been reading through Judges and I'm realizing, man, I am more like Israel than I realize. It literally says how many times, and again, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Circle that every time you read through the book of Judges or any time else, right? It's insane, right? So uh, the God counts 10 different times, 10 different occasions from Israel's exodus out of Egypt to their entrance into the promised land where they totally, where Israel totally refused to take God at his word and do what he told them. 10 different times in just that little short of time. A whole nation doing that. And then you know how the story goes. They get to the promised land. The spies go in. They come back. Hey, the land's great, but the people are scary. We're not going. I'd rather go back and be slaves in Egypt. And Israel's like, okay. And what is God's response? He's like, all right. That's it. <laughs> That's it. He goes to Moses. He says, Moses, I'll make a nation out of you. These people have tested my patience. And I've given it to them over and over again. Moses intercedes on their behalf, right? He prays and intercedes and asks God to bear with them longer. He says, because you are a God who is slow to anger. He depends on God's character for the intercession of his prayer. God stuck with Israel even longer after that because he is slow to anger. And God, in fact, like God is, is willingly putting up with all the provocation of wicked generations for thousands of years throughout the whole Old Testament until he unleashes all of his anger against his people's sin on his own son, 
Because this is where we get the gospel. You see, Jesus Christ is the surgical strike of God's anger on our sin. In Jesus Christ, God made the ultimate surgical strike on our sin and the rebellion that's still within us, right? So when we were acting like insolent children, God didn't withdraw and forsake us in his anger, nor did he just kind of come in and harshly and capriciously like slash and burn us in his anger. No, instead he sent his son to come close, to draw near by putting on human flesh and Jesus insisted on and persisted in the truth, even to the point where he was hung on the cross in our place. And on that cross, he not only endured human anger and scorn, but he absorbed divine anger from God in our place for our sin, for that which threatens us. Jesus was the ultimate surgical strike of anger against our sin. And because of Jesus, we are saved, we are forgiven, and we are forever free. And yet still, Scripture tells us that there will be a day when Jesus just peels back the sky, not riding on a peaceful donkey, but riding on a war horse, with flames of fire in his eyes, sword coming out of his mouth, faithful and true, tattooed on his thigh, and he comes back and he slays every threat to that which he loves. Conquers the world, destroys Satan, sin, and death. Satan, sin, and death being the pinnacle of threats against those whom he loves. And they are done and no more. So is the full anger of God absorbed? Not yet, because there will be a day when it gets fully poured out on the rest of the world. For us, we are in Christ, and he is our ark, and he sees us safely through. All of this is because God is slow to anger. And guys, I just want to talk about the beauty of the balance here. Does it say God is never angry? It didn't say that, that God is merciful and gracious, never angry, right? No, what, it else, what else didn't it say? It didn't say God is merciful and gracious, always angry. No, he doesn't say he's never angry and he never says he's always angry, right? So like if you, if you lean too far to the one side where it says that God is never angry, then morality, right and wrong, no longer matter, right? Evil, detestable, broken things can be indulged in because there is no threat, there's no consequence. Everything is acceptable. You don't mind getting drunk or having loose sex and abusing your spouse. Murder, uh, adultery, drunkenness, even rejection of Jesus are tolerable to God because he never gets angry. If that were the case. But here's the consequence. If God never gets angry, then the victim of abuse has no hope for rescue. If God never gets angry, then the victim of racism has no hope for redemption. If God never gets angry, the victim of injustice has no hope for justice. If God never gets angry, the death of Jesus was worthless. If you have a God who never is angry, 
then you don't have a God who loves. That's, that's the problem with leaning too far to the one side where you say, well, God never gets angry. But there's a problem with going too far to the other side where you say God is always angry. If that's how you view God, then there is only fear and no intimacy. There is only fire and no actual warmth. So like you just picture the green Hulk, right? Picture the Hulk. You kind of, you kind of, you're on your tippy toes when you're walking around them, hoping something doesn't actually provoke him, and then something does provoke him, and all of a sudden he just turns into this raging monster and just explodes everywhere and destroys everything. And some of us view God that way. I'm, I'm, I'm even sure that we've all been around those kinds of people because they exist. I mean, they don't turn green and hulk up, but they do explode. Right? We've been around those kinds of people maybe even related to those kinds of people, right? Where, where even the slightest, most minuscule wrong done in their eyes, like even failing just to meet their expectation, how small it might be, elicits this explosion of wrath and rage. And so you know those, the, the, the dynamic of that kind of relationship. You're always in fear, never in intimacy, Right? In that kind of relationship, you're, you're, you're never in joy. You're always in, in, in carefulness and in caution. You're always tiptoeing around them. You're never actually comfortable with them because you fear they might just explode on who you are or what you might do. Right? You're always distant. You're never, never close, never intimate, never friendly. There's no invitation to come in that. There's only terrifying rejection. Guys, if you, if you know, I mean, most likely those kinds of people in your life, you're probably not close friends with them. Because we typically withdraw with the, from those kinds of people, do we not? So if you see God as somebody who is just always angry, like he's just this angry father up in heaven, and every time you see him, he has no smile, he's just gritting his teeth waiting for the day when you do enough just to smite you. Like, if that's how you view God, then you will keep him at arm's length. You will never know what it looks like to actually enter into the full presence of God, only into his anger. You'll never have intimate relationship with God if that's how you view him. But this is why God is so beautifully perfect because he has this perfect balance of anger. He's not never angry, he's not always angry, no, but he is slow to get angry. Amen. Now, I think, I think we have to ask the question that we've been asking for everything that we've already talked about. Why on earth would God say he's this? A holy God describes himself as slow to anger. Why does that even make sense? Why would he say, yeah, this is who I am. This is essential to my character. This is part of my glory. It doesn't make sense. What, what does he allow? What does he do? What is the reasoning for God being patient, for God being slow to anger? It literally makes no sense until you see the one reason Scripture provides. And there's one. Literally, if you were to track the whole narrative of Scripture, there's only one given reason why God is patient. 
sisters. That's not it. Luke. Almost, that's not it. Yeah! Because God is slow to anger, we can repent. Because God is slow to anger, we can repent. Think about it. If God were not slow to anger, there would be no allowance for us to turn from our sin. If it were constantly, as soon as you, as soon as you sin, boom, you're done. There would be no time for repentance. But because God is slow to anger, you and I can repent. There's two passages of scripture that are clearly explaining this. One is Romans chapter two, verse four. It says this, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, which is expressed in patience and forbearance even, is meant to lead you to repentance? God's patience, his kindness and patience and forbearance and long-suffering in us is ultimately meant to lead us to what? Repent. Or 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach what? Repentance. God is patient so we can repent, right? As J.I. Packer puts it, God is slow to anger to give us the opportunity to turn from as much as we know of our sin to give as much of we know as our, of ourselves to as much as we know of our God in Christ. So guys, God endures provocation for a time in order to give the provoker time for repentance, to turn from his provocation. So like if you're like me and you look out in the world today and you just see people who are just blatantly rejecting God, just totally turning away from him, objecting to his morality, rejecting any kind of relationship that he's offered in Christ, like you you get heartbroken, do you not? We look at the world and we see how broken it is and how defiant of God's character it is and we're just like, oh God, how long? How long is the world going to be like this? When were you going to return? So guys, I say this kind of silly, but in another sense, like you know the atheist, right? He just doesn't believe in God and they kind of just make that trite statement. Hey, if God exists, let him strike me dead right now. How many of you just said, all right, God, do it? I mean, he's asking for it. How long are you going to put up with that? Why is he still alive? Right? Because God is slow to anger. It's because God is slow to anger. Why isn't God stopping all evil in the world today? Because he is slow to anger. Guys, he's demonstrating this all around us in the world today, which is a grace of God to our broken world. Right? So we may start to wonder. We may start to like wonder if God actually cares about what's going on in the world today or what's going on in our circumstances around us. We may start to wonder that the one, like if the one who denies his existence or the one who rebels against his authority and pursues his own lusts, like, like are, does God actually care about that? Hey, but we don't need to wander very long. 
right? We need not wonder very long. He will show that he does care. He will rise up because he is slow to anger. Just give it some time. Give it some time. Guys, he will rise up against the dictator who commits war crimes against his own people, the citizens of his own nation, and shoves his own country into poverty for his own selfish gain. He will rise up against that. He will rise up against people who mock his standard of morality and make their own. He will rise up against the terrorist who walks into a church or to a mosque or to a synagogue or to a school or to a bar or to any kind of village in the countryside and opens fire on men, women, and children. He will rise up against that. They will be brought to justice. There is anger coming for that. He will repay. Guys, we're looking out in the world. What about in us? Can we bring it home? God will rise up against gossip. He will rise up against the porn addiction. He will rise up against adultery and lying and cheating and drunkenness, and abuse, and homosexuality, and idolatry, and pride, and bitterness, and arrogance, and envy, and selfishness, and lust, casual sex relationships, marital indifference, The list is long, but I'll tell you, all that God has declared as sin are threats to all that God loves. And he loves you who are in Jesus. So I I, I think, I don't know, I just feel kind of like a heaviness I want to be careful because we're in the new covenant. We're not in the old covenant. But we have to ask ourselves, how long are we going to need? Like if you, if, you don't, if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't trusted Jesus, in fact, you've kind of been skeptical of Jesus. You've been kind of on the fence. How long is it going to take? There is time right now for you to repent. There's time for you to turn and receive Jesus. But for those of you who are in Jesus and you've received the full forgiveness of God in Christ, how long are you going to require God's patience for your pet sins? for my pet sins. I talk about pet sins in the sense that we, we kind of keep them hidden, right? We don't let anybody actually know that we have them. And yet we feed them. We play with them. Not realizing like, it's more like a tiger that's just ready to destroy us when it grows into fruition. How long are you gonna need God's patience and discipline to have Christ-likeness form in you? when it could just be in the relationship with God in love.
Because he loves us too much to let us keep going in that. He will rise up against those things because he loves you and they threaten to destroy you. And we praise God that all condemnation associated to our sin has been condemned in Jesus and we are forever free. But there is a kind of fatherly discipline that God has towards those whom he loves. And in my anger, I discipline my children and I pray to God that it's always righteous and never wicked anger. And that it's always careful and like a scalpel not like a butcher knife. Because I feel like that, I believe that that's how God disciplines us carefully. But it stems from his anger. And sometimes the best discipline of God is to take that pet sin that you keep in the dark and just throw it out into the light and say, hey world, here's what he's got. I've taken on the mission of praying for myself, that all my sin in every form of it just be brought into the light because I'm tired of how broken I am and I'm tired of needing the discipline of God to change me and not just being transformed in this presence of love and forgiveness and grace. God is being patient with you so that you and I can repent, so that we can feel the the sorrow and the pain that sin brings, not only to us, but to every strike of the hammer that hit the nail that pierced our Savior's wounds. He gives us time to repent so that we can feel the sorrow, so that we can renounce our sins, so that we can walk in obedience to Christ. Guys, we talk about repentance often like, like it was just a past event that happened when we came to know Jesus once, and that's when we turned away from all sin, and, and it was just once and done. It's, it's kind of like, I don't know, for immature newborn babies in Christ, right? But no, we're more mature. I don't need to repent. When Martin Luther wrote his 95 Theses, which pretty much opened up the Protestant Reformation, which is why we are here today in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. The first Theses that he wrote said this. He said, when our Lord Jesus said, repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be repentance. Every part of our life should be one of always saying, all right, God, show me my sin. God, I'm sorry for it. I turn from it, and I want to follow you in every way. Our whole lives should be marked by repentance until we are fully sanctified by Christ. And our whole lives can be marked by repentance because we have a God who is patient and is able to endure us for a lifetime. So I don't know if there's something just kind of like on the forefront of your mind that God's spirit is already convicting you of. If not, I would just ask that you pray, God, search me and know my heart. Try me, know my all thoughts. 
Reveal to me any iniquity within me. But if there is something there, I have to ask you, will you confess and repent it? Will you repent of it today? Will you turn away from it instead of entertaining it and flirting with it? Will you turn and make war against it? Will you bring your own sin into the light this morning by confessing it to God and to one another? Will you open up yourself to feel the pain of conviction for sin by the Spirit of God in you? Guys, it's only when you feel that pain only there will you truly experience the refining and purifying fire of God's grace in Jesus. Do we not want to be a holy and pure people? We have a God who is holy and pure, who invites us in and say, I will make you to be like me. So do we not want to be holy and pure? Do we not want to be the kind of people who extend patience to others like God instead of requiring patience of others and God? I don't know about you, but I I don't want to be somebody who requires patience. I want to be somebody who gives it. I want to be somebody who, when I enter into the presence of the Lord in prayer and in worship, I don't want to feel the weight of weariness from him. I want to feel the fire of love from him. And it starts with repentance and it ends in patience. So if you guys would just bow your heads, we're gonna respond to this. Perhaps God has brought something into your mind. Maybe it wasn't on the list (laughs) Maybe there's something even within this last week, these last few days, you know, even, even something that was on the way to church this morning. God is patient with you so that you can repent. So would you just confess it to Jesus' wrong? Turn your heart towards him, away from your sin, And trust that God has enough grace for you in Christ to help you walk in obedience to him. Would you just spend that time with Jesus right now? God, this is painful. And yet it's so good. This hurts And yet it heals. This is uncomfortable. And yet you've given us the comforter. God, we need not be a people who are always marked by dreariness and dismay. But God, may we be a people who are marked by conviction for sin and a love and a pursuit of righteousness.
So God, I beg that we all would be a people who have been so changed by your patience towards us that we would then reflect it to others. God, for those sins that you've brought to mind, whether it's just being cold towards a spouse because you've lost the fire of love, or whether it's just white-hot anger towards our kids, or maybe it's laziness at work, or even pride at work, whatever it might be, God, I pray that whatever you've brought to mind, you would give us godly sorrow and lament for our sin, which caused Christ to go to the cross. And I pray that you would grant us true repentance for all of our life, that today would be the day of freedom for some of us in here who have been chained to sin because we've flirted with it too long. We've allowed it to be in existence and we've not, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body. Because God, we believe you are holy and we want to be like you. God, we choose to be holy, set apart for you, Lord, our master, ready to do your will. God, we love you. We love you so much. Make us like you and help us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.